Hello, everyone, and welcome to a Millennial Learns. Thank you all so much for tuning in to today's episode. This is one that I have prepped like a while back and I've been wanting to do for quite a while now and just haven't gotten the time or the energy to record. So we are coming in hot today to start the new year with a history of the Irish Troubles. Now, I always like to tell a little bit of a backstory about kind of why I'm interested in this topic or why we're going over it because I just pick like random topics all the time if you're new to the podcast. Basically, I just choose any topic that I want to learn more about, research it for the week, and then do a little report on what I learned. So this week is Irish Troubles. And I wanted to learn about this because of the show The Dairy Girls. So The Dairy Girls is based in Northern Ireland and the whole show is taking place during the Troubles. Um, But then the end, they were voting on like a peace agreement. And when I first watched the show, I really didn't know what was going on. I didn't know the history of the Troubles basically at all. Um, So I was a little bit lost and I had to read up on the Troubles a little bit. And when I rewatched, it made kind of a lot more sense. They they spell it out pretty well in the show, but I think I just was distracted enough in (laughs) enough of the crucial parts that I was a little bit lost. So since I realized I really didn't know anything about the Irish Troubles, I decided to dedicate a full podcast episode to it. So very, very interesting. They lasted way, way longer than I thought. Um, So yeah, I I had a a good time learning about all this. It's funny because my aunt grew up in Austria and she was saying that like basically all she remembers learning or not all she remembers, but a huge chunk of what they learned was the Irish Troubles. And I feel like we just never got that in depth with it here. So this was my chance to dive in and I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, let's get right into it. So there's a few names that this whole period can kind of be known as. The most common I think is the Irish Troubles. It can also just be called the Troubles or it can be called the Northern Ireland Conflict. But from what I understand, the Irish Troubles or the Troubles is, uh, they're the most common names. It was a violent conflict. It was a violent sectarian conflict. It lasted for 30 years from 1968 to 1999. Now, originally I was shocked at the length of time this lasted. I thought it was maybe just a few years or maybe a decade or something, but no, it was a full 30 years before there was a a resolution. And let's just get the players like set here because this is gonna be referenced a lot. Um, It was mostly between Protestant unionists who were also known as loyalists They wanted to remain part of the UK. And then on the other side was the Catholic Nationalists or the Republicans who wanted Northern Ireland to become part of the Republic of Ireland. So it really boiled a lot down to Protestants versus Catholics. The Protestants wanted to remain part of the UK. The the Catholics wanted to become part of Ireland. Other players were the British Army, the Royal Ulster, Constabulary. I have a hard time pronouncing that word, but they're known as the RUC. And the Ulster Defense Regiment or the Royal Irish Regiment. Um, They changed their name from the Ulster Defense Regiment to the Royal Irish Regiment after 1992. Their main job was to be peacekeepers between the National Irish... uh, uh, Sorry. Their main job was to be peacekeepers between the Nationalist Irish Republican Army, which is the IRA. Um, You'll probably hear that acronym a lot, the IRA. Um, So they were trying to keep the peace between the IRA and the Unionist paramilitary forces. 
the view of the conflict was also different between the two sides, like very different. The IRA viewed the conflict as a guerrilla war for national independence. The paramilitary forces characterized the IRA as a terrorist group. So there was violence basically, it sounds like all through the 30 years, there was street fighting, bombings, sniper attacks. Um, they would inter uh, internment without trial. And, you know, they'd have ro roadblocks and stuff like that. So lots of violence, but still it's categorized textbook definition as a low intensity conflict. I think because it wasn't just constant, like a, a full-blown war, it was these kind of spurts of people being killed and attacks and things like that. But um, so it was very violent, but technically they still classify it as a low intensity conflict. 3,600 people were killed and 30,000 were wounded before a resolution came in 1998. So that's kind of the background on the conflict. So let's get into the origins of it. Because I was like, this is such a, it seemed when I was reading through this that it was such a deep rooted problem. I mean, that's why it lasted for 30 years. It was not just like a surface level problem. So there are some deep origins here. So it stemmed from the first British incursion in Ireland, the Anglo-Norman invasion of the late 12th century. And what this invasion did is it left a wave of settlers whose descendants became known as the Old English. So over the next eight centuries after this um, incursion, uh, England and Great Britain dominated the affairs of Ireland. So British landlords were widely dis uh, British landlords widely displaced the Irish landholders. And the most successful plantations began to take hold in the early 1600s in Ulster, which is the northernmost part of the four Irish provinces. So Ulster is really where all of this displacement was really focused, where these British landlords would come in and kind of kick out the Irish landholders. Um, previously, Ulster had been a center of rebellion, and the planters included, included English and Scottish tenants as well as British landlords. So, at this point, there was a struggle going on for the emancipation of Ireland's Catholic majority under the supremacy of the Protestant ascendancy. So, this is where we get the Catholic versus Protestant kind of roots. So, Ireland had a Catholic majority. But the Protestants who came in had ascended, and now there was a struggle going on for their emancipation. There was also an Irish national pursuit of home rule and then independence after they made a formal union with Great Britain in 1801. Home rule was a movement to secure internal autonomy for Ireland within the British Empire. So, yes, again, they wanted autonomy for their homeland away from... Britain. I guess within, yeah, within Britain, within the British Empire. As a result of these things, Ulster ended up with a Protestant settler majority and an indigenous Irish minority. It said, unlike earlier English settlers, these ones in the 17th century did not assimilate with the Irish. So before this, if the British came into Ireland, they mostly assimilated. But because of this well, I guess during this time in Ulster, these English settlers, instead of assimilating, they refused to assimilate and displaced the Irish. There were nine counties that made up Ulster in the early 20th century. So this is where we get like to, into the politics of 
um, I guess just the general politics of the Troubles because there were nine counties that made up Ulster. Four had large Protestant majorities. Two had small Catholic majorities and three had large Catholic majorities. So it was roughly pretty even between Protestant and Catholic majorities. In 1920 to 1921 was the Irish War of Independence. The British Parliament responded largely to the wishes of Ulster Loyalists, who were the Protestants, and enacted the Government of Ireland Act. What this act did was it divided Ireland into two self-governing areas with devolved home rule-like powers. It wasn't exactly home rule, but it was similar. Northern Ireland, in quotes, like that whole area of Northern Ireland, was formed by Ulster's four majority loyalist counties, along with the two small majority Catholic counties. However, the other three large majority Catholic counties were combined with the island's rest of the counties and they fell into Southern Ireland. So basically Northern Ireland was at this point mostly Protestant because they got the two, or they got the big loyalist majorities and the only two small Catholic counties. So um, they just pushed the other three into Southern Ireland. Then came the Anglo-Irish Treaty. It ended the War of Independence and created the Irish Free State in the South, which gave it dominion status within the British Empire. So at this point, Southern Ireland was, was its own thing within the British Empire. And it allowed Northern Ireland the option of remaining outside of the Free State, which it chose to do. Okay, at this point in 1922, Northern Ireland began functioning as a self-governing region of the UK. One million of the people were Protestant and a half a million were Catholic, so definitely Catholics were in the minority. Before the split, though, Belfast had attracted lots of migrant workers looking for jobs. It had a huge linen-making and shipbuilding industry, and so there were a lot of jobs available and lots of, of migrants came to that area. The best jobs went to the Protestants, but Catholics also were able to get work for the most part. Loyalists at this point, because of their majority, were in control of politics and, um, and you know, their control was guaranteed because of the number of them, um, but also because of gerrymandering of the electoral districts, which minimalized any Catholic representation. So they redrew the lines and minimized how Catholics could could be represented within their counties. Voting was also limited to heads of households. So this was big for Catholics because the Protestants tended to have much smaller families than the Catholics. So, you know, there were half a million Catholics, but they had bigger families, which meant only the heads of household, which were fewer of them, um, could vote. So they had less representation compared to the smaller family Protestants. Also, those who paid rates for more than one resident um, were granted an additional vote for where they held the property. So because more Protestants got the good jobs, a lot of them had were able to get more properties or pay the rates for more than one resident, so they got more votes. So it was kind of a rigged system against the Catholics. Okay. Um, this says the divided Northern Ireland was less theological as it was cultural. So for part of this, I'm just going to read straight from uh, Britannica. I'm 
I've mostly took my timeline from Britannica, so there's some parts that I'll probably just read here. But um, Irish history and language was not taught in schools in Northern Ireland. It was illegal to fly the flag of the Irish Republic. And from 1956 to 1974, the party of Irish Republicanism was banned. How you can just ban a party is very interesting to me, but yeah, Irish culture was trying to be suppressed in Northern Ireland. Catholics mostly identified as Irish and wanted to incorporate into the Irish state. Protestants, again, identified as British. They thought they would lose the culture and privilege if they consumed, if they were consumed into the Irish state. So they were proud of their British heritage and they did not want to lose their culture. Okay, this is from the Britannic website. Again, I'll link the sources I got everything from in the show notes. But it says, they expressed their partisan solidarity through involvement with Protestant Unionist fraternal organizations such as the Orange Order, which found its inspiration in the victory of King William III, William of Orange, at the Battle of Boyne in 1690 over his deposed Catholic predecessor, James II, whose siege of the Protestant community of Londonderry had had earlier been broken by William. Okay, it also says that, um, it says, recognizing that any attempt to reinvigorate Northern Ireland's declining industrial economy in the early 1960s would also need to address the province's percolating political and social tensions, the newly elected Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, Terence O'Neill, not only reached out to the nationalist community, but also, in early 1965, exchanged visits with Irish Tausich, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong because there's a lot of vowels in it. They say basically that means the Irish Prime Minister, Sean Lamass, which was a radical step given that the Republic's a radical step given that the Republic's constitution included an assertion of sovereignty over the whole island. Nevertheless, O'Neill's efforts were seen as inadequate by nationalists and as too conciliatory by loyalists, including the including Ian Paisley, who became one of the most vehement and influential representatives of the Unionist reaction. So he tried. Um, Terence O'Neill tried to kind of address these things, and it was not uh, it was not seen favorably by either side. Okay, the Education Act that the Northern Ireland Parliament passed in 1947 increased educational opportunities for all. So, it said a well generate a well educated generation of Catholics came of age in the 60s because of this law that had passed in 1947. And they had expectations for more equitable treatment. So political activism was on the rise in Europe and the U.S. So groups like the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association and ICRA began to form in Ireland because of this, you know, this new generation of Catholics that were coming of age. It's debated what officially started the Troubles. So the, the common date of the Troubles beginning is 1968. October 5th, 1968, specifically in Derry, which is why Derry Girls was, you know, all about the Troubles or focusing on girls in Derry during during this time because it was kind of like this hot spot of the Troubles. Um, but it's commonly thought that they began October 5th, 1968 in Derry, where a march had been organized by the NICRA to protest discrimination and gerrymandering. 
the march was banned because unionists were doing a counter demonstration, but NICRA, they pro I can probably call that like NICRA or something, NICRA, um, carried out the protest anyway, and it broke out into rioting after the RUC violently suppressed marchers with batons and a water cannon. So there were many tensions before this, but this is generally considered to be the start of the troubles officially. Then there was something called the Battle of Bogside. It happened August 12th, 1969. It surrounded a march held by loyalists in Londonderry. There were two days of rioting, and it stemmed from a clash between the Nationalists and the RUC, which was a buffer between the loyalist marchers and the Catholic residents in the area. So the rioting then started in Belfast in support of the Nationalists, and it spread to other places. The British Army was dispatched to restore order, and this is kind of another big start of the troubles um then there were there was internment and peace walls so it says that electoral boundaries were then redrawn more fairly efforts were made to rectify discrimination in housing and employment however the northern ireland government responded to unrest by internment the overwhelming majority of those arrested were nationalists in the 70s rioting was common in belfast and Derry. british soldiers British soldiers laid barbed wire to separate sectarian communities, and these evolved into what was known as peace walls. Some of them were 45 feet high, so they would have these like these walls or barriers up with either barbed wire or other walls to separate loyalist and republican enclaves. Okay, one of the biggest um, events that you'll probably hear about when talking about the Troubles is Bloody Sunday. This happened on January 30th, 1972. It kind of upped the level of intensity just in the fighting in general on Bloody Sunday. British paratroopers fired on Catholic civil rights demonstrators in Londonderry and killed 13 and injured 14. This is very interesting because it was controversial for decades until in 2010, there was a British government inquiry into the event and it concluded that the shooting had been unjustified on the part of the British paratroopers. So the British Prime Minister David Cameron responded and apologized officially to Ireland in 2010. So like up until then they had said, oh, I think it's, you know, it's justified. They'd always held that it was a justified shooting. And finally in 2010, they apologized and said, we found that it was not justified. Okay, there was also Bloody Friday, which was July 21st. 1972, um, so same year as Bloody Sunday. Two dozen bombs were detonated by the provost and slash IRA in Belfast, leaving nine dead and scores injured. This says, beginning in the mid-1970s, the IRA shifted the emphasis of its long war from direct engagements with British troops to smaller-scale secretive operations. This included the bombing of cities in Britain, a change of tactics by the British military described as a shift from insurgency to terrorism. So I mentioned before that the paramilitary of, of Britain viewed the IRA as a terrorist group. This is about the time that this happened. So the mid-1970s is when they really started changing their view to this is an insurgency to the IRA is a terrorist group. It says, similarly, the loyalist groups began setting off bombs in Ireland. Meanwhile, par paramilitary violence at mid-decade resulted in the civilian deaths of some 370 Catholics 
and 88 Protestants. Okay, then we get to 1973. There was something called the Sunningdale Agreement. This was the agreement that led to the creation of the new Northern Ireland Assembly with proportional representation for all parties. So it seems like a step in the right direction. It also led to the establishment of a Council of Ireland, which was to provide a role for Ireland in the affairs of Northern Ireland. The Loyalists hated that the Republic had a say in government and they went on strike and halted the province, or that halted the province, oh my gosh. They went on strike that halted the province in May of 1974 and basically forced a return to direct rule. So we will get back to this like later. There's more developments on, um, you know, the fact that Ireland would have any say in the affairs of Northern Ireland. But so they attempted that in 1974, but then the loyalists ended up forcing a return to direct rule. Okay, it says for the remainder of that decade in the 70s, it ebbed and flowed. There were ceasefires that lingered and lapsed. There were bombings, assassinations, high-profile killings. Um, so Lord Mountbatten was killed at sea in August 1979. He was a relative of both Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip. So if you watch The Crown, I just learned about this, um, and it shows the Lord Mountbatten getting killed at sea. That was... Um, as part of the, that was part of the Troubles. That was like an attack as part of the Troubles. In 1976, the opening of the specially designed Maze Prison brought with it a shift in the treatment of IRA inmates from that of prisoners of war to that of common criminals. Seeking a return to their special category status, the prisoners struck back, first staging the blanket protest in which they refused to put on prison uniforms and instead wore only blankets. And then in 1978, the dirty protest in which inmates smeared the walls of their cells with excrement. The government of recently elected Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher refused to buckle, even in the face of <clears throat> even in the face of hunger strikes in 1980 to 1981 that led to the deaths of ten prisoners, including Bobby Sands, who had won a seat in the British Parliament while incarcerated and fasting. It says Sands' election helped convince Sinn Féin, then operating as the political wing of the IRA, that the struggle for unification should be pursued at the ballot box as well as with the Armalite rifle. In June 1983, Sinn Féin leader Jerry Adams won a seat in Parliament representing West Belfast, though he refused to take it to avoid the compulsory oath of loyalty to the British Queen. So, lots happening here with, like, the prison situation, the inmates, the political stuff, but basically through this whole time, the parties and the the political wing of the IRA is realizing that yes we need to have these attacks and stuff but also we need to pursue the ballot box as an option okay the anglo-irish agreement and downing street declaration so on october 1984 there was an ira bomb attack on the conservative party conference on brighton or in brighton england it killed five and threatened the life of Thatcher. However, um, well, it said that um, Margaret Thatcher stayed strong throughout the attack, but in November 1985, Thatcher joined Irish Prime Minister Garrett Fitzgerald in signing the Anglo-Irish Agreement. So, what this new agreement was is that both countries guaranteed 
um, that a change in the status of Northern Ireland would only come with the consent of the majority of people in Northern Ireland. So, like, we're not just going to change the status of them without them, like, voting on it, basically. The people of Northern Ireland need to be in agreement. And this is what I believe, well, no. So, never mind. I was going to bring up Dairy Girls, like, the voting that they did at the end. I think eventually what they voted on, like, came because of this Anglo-Irish agreement. Because they said, okay, if we're going to change the status, the people need to agree and vote, and the majority needs to decide. Um, and so that's what they were voting on in 1998. Um, but the groundwork of this was established in 1985. Okay, also this agreement established the Intergovernmental Conference, which gave Ireland a co consultative role in the political and security affairs of Northern Ireland. So this is like the second attempt at, you know, what the loyalists kind of forced back into or forced away in the previous Anglo-Irish agreement. Um, basically, it says that, yes, Southern Ireland or just Ireland as a whole can give, can have a role in the affairs of Northern Ireland. Uh, said power would only be devolved back on the government of Northern Ireland if unionists and nationalists participated in power sharing, in some power sharing agreement. So, loyalists were vehemently opposed to this agreement. There were 15 unionist, unionist members of the House of Commons that resigned. But in 1993, the British Prime Minister John Major and Irish Prime Minister Albert Reynolds issued the Downing Street Declaration. So, this is what established a framework for all party peace talks. This, a ceasefire was declared by Provost in 1994 and joined, um, was joined by the principal loyalist paramilitary groups. It fell apart in 1996 because Sinn Féin, which had replaced the more moderate Social Democratic and Labor Party, had been excluded from peace talks because the IRAs continued bombing. So they couldn't actually join <laughs> The peace talks because they didn't really uh, participate in the ceasefire but in 1997 the IRA did resume the ceasefire and Sinn Féin was welcomed back into the peace talks. There were other people involved in these peace talks um, it included British and Irish governments, the SDLP, the Alliance Party of Northern Ireland, the UUP and the Ulster Democratic Party and it says among others so there were a lot of people kind of involved in these talks but those were kind of the major the major players there okay from this last part i'm going to just read from britannica because it's kind of how we wrap up the whole discussion and the peace talks and everything and i want to make sure that i get all the good details and you know get all the everything correct so um, these peace talks mediated by former U.S. Senator George Mitchell led to the Good Friday Agreement, or the Belfast Agreement, which was reached April 10th, 1998. That landmark accord provided for basically three things. The creation of a power-sharing Northern Ireland Assembly established an institutional arrangement for cross-border cooperation between the governments of Ireland and Northern Ireland on a range of issues, and laid the groundwork for continued consultation between the British and Irish governments. On May 22nd, Ireland and Northern Ireland held a joint referendum on the agreement, which was approved by 94% of those who voted in the Republic and 71% of those who were voting in Northern Ireland. Catholic approval of the accord was much higher than the Protestant assent. It says, nonetheless, it was an IRA splinter group called the Real Irish Republican Army, which most dramatically violated the spirit of the agreement with a bombing in 
homage or omog um, in August that took 29 lives. So yes, they voted on the referendum or they held the joint referendum in May. And then a couple months later, there was a bombing from a splinter of the IRA. So this says that elections for the new assembly were held in June, but the IRA's failure to decommission delayed the formation of the power sharing Northern Ireland executive until December of 1999, when the IRA promised to fulfill its obligation to disarm. That month, the Republic of, the Republic of Ireland modified its constitution, removing its territorial claims to the whole of the island, and the United Kingdom yielded direct rule of Northern Ireland. Ostensibly, the troubles had come to an end, but the Northern... Uh, oh, wait, okay, let me, let me read that again. Ostensibly, the troubles had come to an end, but though Northern Ireland began its most tranquil area, tranquil era in a generation, the peace was fragile. Sectarian antagonism persisted, the process of decommissioning was slow on both sides, and the rolling out of the new institutions was fitful, resulting in suspensions of devolution and the reimposition of direct rule. In July 2005, however, the IRA announced that it had ordered all of its units to dump arms, would henceforth pursue its goals only through peaceful means, and would work with international inspectors to verifiably put its arms beyond use. At a, press, at a press conference in September, a spokesman for the Independent International Commission on Decommissioning stated, we are satisfied that the arms decommissioned represent the totality of the IRA's arsenal. Decommissioning by unionist paramilitaries and other Republican groups followed. So, okay, just a quick side note here. I know that the troubles technically ended in 1998. I did not realize that into the 2000s, like well into the 2000s, the IRA was still a group and still saying like okay now we're going to actually decommission all of our arms so very interesting that it's so recent i just really did not i was probably 10 i was 10 when that happened so i was just not aware of any of this really going on in march 2007 an agreement to form a power sharing government was reached by jerry adams and ian paisley respective leaders of the sinn fein and dup the two parties which had won the most seats in the election for the assembly that month. On May 8th, 2007, direct rule was rescinded, or yeah, direct rule was rescinded as Paisley was sworn in as first minister and Sinn Féin's Martin McGuinness, a one-time IRA commander, became deputy first minister. So that is the troubles, basically. So Yes, it went from 1968 to 1998. However, there were some residual things that were still getting taken care of well into the 2000s, which is very interesting. And I can't believe I was just so unaware of all of this history. I knew there was like Catholic and Protestant fighting in Ireland, and that's basically the extent that I knew. So it's in all this backstory about like their incursion onto the island and then the Protestants taking over the land and having this whole power imbalance and Catholics being kind of discriminated against. All of that was extremely interesting to learn. So um, if you have not seen Dairy Girls, I would highly recommend you go to see that because it gives it a little bit of a more, I don't know, lively approach to what the troubles were and how they came to a resolution. And the last couple episodes are good at like wrapping it up um, and showing the resolution to the troubles, at least the, the joint resolution that they had in 1998. Um, so I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you learned a lot. I know I did. And I will see you next week for another episode.
Bye, everyone.